Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 217. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jujitsu approach. And today, joined by the newly married, newly Californian, Margot Ciccarelli. Margot, what's up? Hi, Steve. How's everything? Not bad. Can't complain. Same old for me, but a lot's changed for you, man. You got a lot of updates. Oh my God, yes. It's been a very, very drastic lifestyle change and a lot of new life chapters, ultimately. (laughs) (laughs) So why didn't you talk about that? I mean, of course, I think anyone who follows you on social, probably up to speed, but just in case anyone missed the memo, what's the big news? So I'm now living in California. So I moved from East Coast to West Coast. Huge change. I joined Art of Jiu-Jitsu in October, although I was formerly with AOJ and Artos in the era of the 2014-2016 arc. So yeah, so we'll get into that a bit later. Also got married, so woo. That's a lot. On Yes, it is a lot. I'm like just kind of thinking it over. Yeah, a lot of adjustments to the city itself. It's truly a very positive start to the new year. Awesome. Amazing. Well, I am happy to have you back on for, for a chat here. Something that we've been brainstorming, which I think is probably relevant given your recent experience. You talked about basically sharing some of your nomadic lessons with the audience here. Before we get into that, though, are you still technically the nomadic Mars or are you more the stationary (laughs) Mars at this point? Well, listen, my my joke usually is that as I got married, it would be the grounded Mars as opposed to the stationary (laughs) Mars doesn't really have the same ring to it. You know what I mean? I I think at heart, I'm always going to be nomadic and free spirit. So that never changes. Although I did change my Instagram handle to my name, but I do actually still have ownership of the nomadic Mars Instagram handle. So, you know, I can't leave that part of my identity. (laughs) But for sure, I'm definitely a lot more domestic than before. It's truly an unbelievable evolution of my life currently. The domestic Mars. The domestic Mars. (laughs) There we go. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I think Meg would enjoy it. Yes, she would. All right. So, I mean, this is as good a time as any to launch into the topic. We'd been brainstorming for a while and something you'd propose talking about here on the show is sharing some of the lessons from your journey. I mean, of course, one of the things that has been so defining about you is the fact that up until, at least up until now, you've lived that nomadic lifestyle, a lot of travel, a lot of visits to a lot of cool places. But of course, you're trying to balance that with becoming a world-class athlete and maintaining what you need to operate at that level. And that's something that I personally have been curious about. So many people kind of have a home gym and most of their jujitsu training lives and dies within those walls. But there's got to be a whole series of challenges for people who want to live the kind of lifestyle that you have lived or alternately, maybe they're just looking to find that gym where they can achieve the highest level of training that they can achieve for themselves. And I'd love to pick your brain on this in terms of what you've learned in this journey. I think in the much earlier years of my career, like white and blue belt chapter, I would say that the method of which we understand how to learn, how to structure our training, whether that is generally that is going to be outside of the classroom because you don't usually have control of your training environment at that stage. I think I've been like very lucky during my journey from purple to black to actually have a lot of flexibility in creating the room, but I don't think a lot of people normally have that luxury. So what I would say like number one is if you are to be come world class from anywhere the number one thing is understanding how to self-evaluate yourself 
So understanding each time that you roll, what are some tools that you can use that you can reflect on the roll in a productive manner? I think I actually got really lucky to have some guidance from some of the more senior students at one of my previous gyms in Hong Kong that it wasn't so much that I was taught a lot of different techniques by this particular person, although he did also do that. What was the most defining thing that I learned from him really was, okay, how should I learn? How should I train? This is how I should look at myself when I'm rolling. And I just started to keep refining that method because of course you're not going to be good at it first. You know, you think that, okay, this is actually the thing that I'm doing wrong in the roll, but you tend to kind of over-focus on the completely irrelevant thing that doesn't really add up to anything for your future progress. So I think that's something I actually do try and teach people in my online coaching, in the mentorships, because my philosophy is generally that we should want to become self-sufficient. My job as a coach is not for you to rely on me. My job is to give you tools that makes you self-sufficient. And then I will only be there to facilitate and give additional perspective. That is my personal point of view as a teacher and rather facilitator. So I think the second thing is really understanding that there has to be intention in every training session. Like you can spend a lot of years of training and really accumulated a lot of mad time without actually getting better. It's truly, you would think like that, that wouldn't be the case, but I've just seen this happen time and time again. There's lots of people who come in, they're just going through the motions and ultimately it isn't really improving their skill set. They're just doing the same thing day in, day out. Yeah, I definitely can relate to that. I've seen it myself. I've even experienced that myself at some point. We've talked about this on the podcast before about how one of the things about jujitsu is that it is very addictive in a lot of ways, right? I, I've never really experienced anything in my life like it. It's a, you know, it's a sport, it's a physical activity, but there's something about it. It's got this addictive quality that just sucks people in and it can become a, an end in and of itself rather than a means. And it's easy to just go to jujitsu for jujitsu's sake, where you're just going because it's a fun activity. And if you're not consciously, deliberately steering your journey, you can get into these situations where you just turn your brain off and you just roll without intention. Like you said, you're kind of just doing your stuff. What tends to happen is people will gravitate towards the techniques they're most comfortable with and avoid the stuff they aren't necessarily comfortable with. And they'll just do the same thing over and over again for days, weeks, months, sometimes years and I mean, you can you can get marginally better doing that, but you're not going to see the big breakthroughs that you would get if you shake it up or if you get good feedback from people or if you deliberately steer into new areas that you haven't before. And all of this ties into what you're talking about there, the importance of steering your own jujitsu journey, which is such an important part of the journey itself and something that I think not enough coaches actually talk about. I'd love to hear more about how you steer people in that direction to become more self-sufficient like that, especially at the, the higher belt levels where it becomes more important. 100%. I think we backtrack just one second and to really reveal a very like simple thing that most people can do in order to really start off this process. Because of course, the practice of self-evaluation doesn't really start with your human recollection. <laughs> Of the role itself, you know, that that's a very unreliable method of thinking about your role because we often really distort what the role felt like. We think sometimes like we're much slower than we actually were, that we weren't in a particular position, that we weren't in. It's truly crucial at some point during your training week. It doesn't have to be every day, but that you do film yourself because there have been like a number of people that I've ended up coaching that. It's like the very first thing that I'll ever tell anyone to do before working with me, that I need a whole week to just observe movement patterns. And observing movement patterns generally is going to be coming from a collection of tape footage that they provide me with. And by accumulating that, I'm able to look at the videos, analyze the movement patterns, but then also do that with the person to teach them why I'm actually looking at and that is kind of like the beginning of the process of like, okay, I'm going to guide you through how I would evaluate the video 
and slowly you're going to try and look for the same things. Slowly you're going to try and inform yourself with the same types of questions that I'm asking myself, this self-inquiry process. Asking the right questions is so critical in order to steer you to the correct destination or having clarity of what your goals are. It, it Honestly, like a lot of the, like, the roadmap to becoming world-class from anywhere is really having clarity in your goals, so setting the goals, accountability from someone other than yourself. So of course, you know, jujitsu is not a solo practice. It is a partner practice. Therefore, you will have a training partner who can, I would hope at least, <laughs> that will keep you accountable because often, you know, in order to push yourself to do hard things, there's people who are obviously self-driven. Uh, maybe they can do it by themselves, but usually it really is at the end of the day. It's a very social sport. Like we do need the help of our training partners, even if you're not the sort of person who has a home gym or maybe you're traveling a lot. So you don't always have the same training partners. But I, I think something that was so helpful for me, you know, like just approaching jujitsu and everyone that I met with kindness, curiosity, and an open heart, really, open heart and open mind, because, you know, I'm not looking at the time. I wasn't looking really to just like take things from other people. I wanted to share as much jujitsu as possible, which really is the same motto that I live by today. I'm just trying to share as much as possible. I, I truly believe that it is like, it's an exchange. It is a give and take. The more that I was giving to others, they would also give me back the accountability. I'm like, hey, can you help me do this? I'll do you mind like spending some extra time with me after class. It's just really a very, very human thing rather than thinking I need to get better. Like the way that we frame that sentence, like I need to get better, but it's rather that, okay, like how do I become a part of this community also? Because I think a lot of people think that being nomadic also sounds very kind of like, oh, you don't actually ever really get to bonds with your friends and that that's not necessarily true it is truly dependent on how you choose to approach the situation because I, I do think it's really critical that you form strong social connections in each gym that you are if this person's goal is like okay i want to not only be well class from anywhere because being well class from anywhere could also insinuate okay i am just somewhere in the world where there maybe isn't access to world-class jiu-jitsu but you do have a home gym so you're still technically at one location and maybe you cross train a little bit being nomadic i do believe is like a totally different it's even more different approach so i i think the first thing that i want to share with people is just being world-class from anywhere but you you have a home base and you're potentially open to cross training so but filming yourself is like the number one thing, like so many people are shocked. The first time I asked some of my students to film themselves, they reviewed the footage and they're like, wow, I've never seen myself roll. And it's such a crazy thing, at least for me to hear, because you obviously can have the notion of how you're moving physically in your minds, like after you try and record the role, but having the ability to look at the role and to review it so you have a visual point of reference that is truly one of the most powerful tools that we can use and that's the reason why for example like flow grappling and we have so many other subscriptional sites that they're providing jujitsu that is providing a visual point of reference that allows people to continually try and imitate and emulate the highest level jujitsu players around the world. That That is very, very crucial because you can see, okay, this technique works because XYZ athlete did this at the world championship. Like, this is what it should look like. That's always one of the first things that I'm telling people. Like, number one, if you can emulate, you're going to get the aesthetic of the move at least correct. And when you have the aesthetic, you can kind of work out the underlying mechanics behind, okay, what is making this sweep work? What is making this submission work, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that point about tape study too. So many people will obviously understand that there's benefit in watching other people roll, but many people neglect to watch themselves roll. And usually it is a an eye-opening experience when you do that. I remember the first time I ever watched footage of myself rolling, I was shocked because there were things that I thought I 
had always done when I was training, certain motions that I thought that I'd always used. And in fact, I'd taught other people and I said, oh, well, when I do this move, I put my head here and this is what I do. And then when I actually watched playback of myself, I realized shit, I don't actually do those things. I thought I was doing this, but what's actually happening is quite different. The image of how I roll in my own head is very different from what actually happens in reality. And man, we have the benefit of having cameras in our pockets now. It's so easy to just bust that out and record just a quick clip of yourself rolling. And I know sometimes people are shy about doing that, but it's such a, an eye-opening experience when you see yourself from a third person perspective, you'll probably realize you don't actually grapple the way that you thought you did. <laughs> and it's a, it could be very educational. 100%. You know, I, I think ultimately what it is, and this is the part where sometimes uh, self-coaching can become a little bit troubling because it, it's truly mainly about the psychology of the person and their fears. You know, like sometimes it's about judging oneself. Like, oh my God, I don't want to see how bad I look. You see the, how there are all these narratives that actually like in order to be successful at jujitsu, you cannot create narratives around what your jujitsu is. And this is just a very human thing. You know, we often do create narratives in our daily lives. And we also create narratives in the training room, like XYZ person is super aggressive, but that's the perception of our training partner, for example, right? Or like to give a uh, more relevant context, for example, if I have a narrative around, I can't sweep XYZ person, da 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 da, you're already setting yourself up for failure. Rather, when you review the tape, I do recommend that most people don't try and judge the tape like that because that doesn't actually, that's not a constructive statement. What would be constructive in evaluation is like really assessing as rationally as possible things that we can actually review like base the posture or the tempo that the person was moving like what's your tempo versus your partner's tempo where is your hand placement versus your partner's hands were you were you second to engage was your partner first to engage these are things that would be more constructive for us to discuss i think Filming is definitely a very vulnerable thing, so, but that's the first step if someone is to go towards this path of self-coaching and becoming world-class from anywhere, not being dependent on their current coach. Because it's not as if you, of course, you can listen to your coach wherever you are, no matter what country you're in. Of course, there's always something valuable that you may be able to take away from them, but it, it's also very important that we become self-reliant we understand that we don't have to be spoon-fed for information also trust our intuition because that this part trusting our own intuition and not saying statements like oh but like i'm just a blue belt i wouldn't know any better it's nothing to do with the belt this is human movement like we're all very intelligent humans for the mo for most people, <laughs> most people Steve, not everybody, but most people. <laughs> it, it's so critical that we have some faith in what we're doing. If we fail, that's fine, but we will later learn. Also, you know, through discussion and workshopping with our training partners, we can find ways to make the position better. That should be the lens of how we have to approach things has to come from a positive place. It cannot come from a position of negativity usually. But generally, when I have coached people who have a lot of narratives around their jiu-jitsu, like I've probably said in a previous episode that jiu-jitsu is very linked to personality and it will reveal our strengths and weaknesses. As I pretty sure that I mentioned that I, I am personally very conflict avoidant and I tend to be a counterplayer because I'd rather the other person speaks first and that I would go second. I listen to them first and then I would speak second after I've heard what they have to say. And also, you know, that also for myself, like I have the self-awareness, but self-awareness is the first thing that we, we need to have in order to actually improve. I have the self-awareness that I'm a counterplayer. And sometimes that makes it harder to win because I've allowed my partner to engage first, right? If I'm able to impose first and shut down everything immediately, that would be the simplest route to winning. So really being able to evaluate our narratives is also going to 
teach people like what does it take to win if that is so, like someone's personal goal we're trying to win okay what's the easiest way to accomplish that is that the way i want to win so you can already see how this leads into the self-inquiry process and a little bit into the goal setting area too because i do believe that when we say world class this means something different to everyone right for example in my context being world class is being a world class competitor that i want to be number 1 that on the other hand i also want to be world class in my jiu jitsu understanding which it's that's not necessarily related to winning though for me that's related to depth of my understanding in all the positions possible in the movement platform of jiu jitsu like i i think that is overall my main definition of what world class means yeah yeah and you bring up some great points there about how how labeling yourself can be dangerous but also important i mean you want to understand who you fundamentally are but also like you said a lot of people have a tendency i think to put labels on themselves that can be self-limiting yes yeah exactly self-limiting is perfect yeah it's one thing to say i mean this is all like growth mindset stuff right it's one thing to say here's where i am now i observe that this is how i'm i'm grappling at the moment and i want to work on some things it's very different to say something like for example i'm just not very athletic you hear that a lot from people where they'll say things like oh i'm just not very athletic or you know i'm a bottom player stuff like that and Look, if if being a bottom player ties into your strategy and it's a deliberate focus of your development, that's cool. But if you have to be careful when you slap labels like that on yourself because you can wind up turning them into self-fulfilling prophecies. I was just about to say that. It was just so so true. Yes. You know, the more that you reaffirm it, it's like a little bit what we're seeing in this era that sounds woo-woo to a lot of people, but like self-affirmations like I am this and that, but it is so true that if you continually keep telling yourself i'm a failure or i always do this wrong i always fuck up this then you're going to really set yourself up for failure you know for many years i always said i'm a god player i'm a god player i'm a god player you know and it, it is i wouldn't say so much as a self-limiting belief but it gave me fear to perform in other ways in competition because i have all the freedom in the classroom to be whatever i want to be right but like i know like when i evaluated myself in the past i i was limiting myself through the labels so i i was like i'm only successful here therefore i will not have success in other areas right and that that's very dangerous especially at the highest level if you're already thinking like that you're setting yourself up for failure the mindset has to be one as you said it's a growth mindset you should not be thinking about the failure actually ultimately if the failure happens like it happens and then we reevaluate again and then we just do better from that yeah what actually should be happening is that i have knowledge in this area but i I'm unclear on how competent I am here. So I'm going to do some testing here. You perform the testing and see what results you gather. From the results, it, it's like pretty much like performing a scientific experiment. Like but you you can't like already say, "Oh, I think this experiment is going to fail." <laughs> you know, like, "Oh, like like you can obviously have that hypothesis, right? But I I don't believe that especially for people who are trying to perform at a high level in sports that that is the way to go. If you look at most people who are really successful in sports, no matter what sport it is, tennis or football, that is a very special psychology of a star player. Yeah, yeah, there's a a refusal to accept limitations that other people might just accept and take for granted or believe about themselves. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, the the big thing being I'm not so good at this or I'm not so good at that. Those can become self-limiting and self-fulfilling prophecies, like I said, <laughs> because if you say it enough, it's going to eventually imprint itself on your your understanding of yourself and you're just going to instinctively steer away from the things you're not good at, which is unfortunate because that's the opposite of how you're supposed to do skill development. You're supposed to invest specifically in the things 
that you're not good at and becoming aware of and accepting of those those areas where you're not great is part of performance improvement. Something that I've noticed, you know, as you know, on our premium site, we do hundreds of technique reviews for people. And one thing that I notice, especially people at junior belts, is they have a tendency to curate the footage that they'll send in. So they'll they'll send in footage that makes themselves look good. But the problem is sometimes the stuff that is most helpful is to be vulnerable and send in the stuff that's going to make you look like shit. 100%. 100%. Yeah. I've also done that for my personal online coaching where I'm usually, my guidelines for sending in videos are very specific. And the guideline is usually that I want to see, I want to see a video of the person rolling with someone that they rate their training partner to be roughly the same skill level than someone who's above the skill level and someone who's below the skill level. So I want to understand also like what is their perception of their training room so they can start to assess more accurately. And I, I think in this way, they can still have the confidence boost. So like, oh, I'm submitting something where I look good. I'm submitting something where like, oh, it's pretty even. And then they're being vulnerable. So there's that like mixed, that mixed video archive that we're building up that they, I can see the best of them. I also see the more vulnerable side of them where they're failing. So I, I think like as a coach, like that's really important that we're not only highlighting weaknesses because again, it is very difficult to evaluate narratives, you know, and a lot of the work that I do with my athletes, like really is in this area. It's the psychological part, the psychological part, the narratives, the approach, because the technique part is actually quite easy at the end of the day. The biggest limiting factors comes more from the mental side. When I think about, again, trying to become world-class from anywhere, like the main hurdle that most people have to really get comfortable with is you are going to go through a lot of adversity. There are going to be a lot of obstacles in front of you. So really nurturing a positive mindset, one that's optimistic, that will take you through to whatever goal you may set, you know, especially for those of you who might be listening, your goal is to win world championship and blue belt or purple belt. Maybe you just want to enter a major and win your first two fights, like anything. The first step is really, you need to have self-belief. And it's obviously easy for me to say that. I think I was lucky in that I've had self-belief in myself my entire life. I have a delusional amount of self-belief <laughs> i think that's why i'm like pretty much made for competition and like as a coach like i i can understand that when people don't have that it is going to be incredibly difficult but that is the work of the coach to nurture the mindset of the athlete without this like everything will become tremendously harder if you have an enormous amount of self-belief you understand that no matter what you're going to be successful if you put in the work, if you put in the effort, you are going to be successful. And you can see how this kind of sounds like an affirmation. This is the clearest path in my mind that will help most people. There's no special tricks to becoming world-class. Of course, it helps if you're at a world-class facility because you're surrounded by people who are also really high level, that have the same goals, etc. But it, it doesn't mean that it's impossible become world-class from a gym that doesn't have many world champions, for example, or not a very competitive school. There's always a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how the big thing you're driving home is that you can't be totally dependent on your coach to completely own and direct your training. This is an interesting thing that's come up a few times recently on the podcast. A while back, we had Robert Drysdale on and we were talking about what's changed in this latest generation of grapplers versus the generations that came before. And one of the things that Robert brought up is that from his perception, a lot of students expect the instructor to basically fully carry the burden of learning and development, whereas to some extent, the student's really got to self-direct. The student has to take ownership because there's only so much the instructor can ultimately do to help you. Like you said, they can they can show you a technique and you can emulate it, but ultimately an instructor cannot live inside your brain. They can't think what you're thinking and understand where you're at specifically. So 
to some extent, to really be fully and truly self-reflective, you have to do that yourself. It has to be a practice that you you take on. And a lot of students, and I think maybe this is just a, a cultural thing with martial arts, but a lot of students, they kind of look at their instructor as the master and yeah. they just do what their instructor says. And you can, you know, at, at a white belt level, that might make sense because you simply don't know anything better. So the best thing to do at that point is listen to your instructor. But as soon as you start getting semi-competent, you've got to start taking more ownership of the journey yourself. And of course, that becomes difficult because you don't always know where your own blind spots are. So yeah, there's a challenge here. It's a kind of a bit of a paradox because on one hand, yes, you want to be confident and you want to believe in yourself. But on the other hand, you also have to acknowledge that you do have weaknesses so that you can work on those weaknesses. So it's kind of a tricky thing because you have to maintain belief that you'll be able to make things work at the end of the day, even if you're not quite there right now. And that kind of long-term growth path is sort of key to what separates a a growth mindset, I think, from someone who just says, yeah, I'm just never going to be very good at this. I think it's very interesting to discuss, but if we think about this more in terms of like a work context, like people are going to their job, there isn't a natural assumption that they're just going to be totally incompetent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at their job, you know, and like there isn't always the general assumption like oh, like my, like my boss has to tell me everything about what I have to do. You know, of course, some people live their life doing that, but I think a lot of the people who really thrive in their work careers, like they also have this same mindset, and it should be translated across and applied in jiu-jitsu in the same way. I think effectively, it's a really great point that you raise that Drysdale was also saying that people were formerly very dependent on the coaches. And, you know, it leads into my point that I was saying a lot of people are spoon-fed. This generation is studying a lot more. I think the best thing that we could really do as teachers, and I hope in the future classroom environments, is that we try and give all the tools to the students that they kind of have the foundation of their jujitsu. So I, I think that actually doesn't take a very long amount of time to do. It's just, it's so easy to allow our ego to get involved with that because in the past, I don't believe people were very good at creating curriculums. <laughs> there wasn't much for into curriculum creation, right? So often like you're either repeating the same techniques that you've already somewhat learned, and then you're kind of getting very random techniques that are not at all related to the jiu-jitsu. By teaching jiu-jitsu with a systems-based approach, like you can see like there's players like Joseph Chan that haven't been training very long, but because they've been utilizing a system-based approach with the learning, his knowledge is greater than a lot of people that have been training over a decade. I know people who have been training a decade who are going to him and like, wow, like he really knows so much and he's able to really utilize the information, but also apply it in, in the training room on the competition map. Uh, that is a great example of what it means to be a modern grappler in my opinion. He's pretty much been studying Danaher's instructionals online. He had a training method in mind. It was very clear what he wanted, and he did the specific training. He had intentions in practice. There weren't any narratives. He basically trained. He was in the middle of nowhere in China. (laughs) He did not a lot of good grapplers over there. In comparison, at least, to America and Brazil, where there's like there's an abundance of amazing schools, you know, truly I do like give Joseph a lot of credit for what he did out there. And I know that he was following some guidance from Rob Biernaki and Steve, you know, his name, I forget his name right now. Whose name? I don't know. Who who are we talking about? Give me a hint. (laughs) The guy that works with Rob. Oh, Rory Van Vliet. Yes, 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 yes. There we go. There we go. My bad. Yeah. So I think like they, obviously have a very conceptual approach, which is very helpful also with the learning process. Yeah. I think between having the system-based approach with the injection of conceptual learning, that has been the major advancement in the modern jujitsu learning era. Of course, we have, again, an abundance of subscriptional sites. There's so many resources online that 
give us visual points of references, but also we have access to world-class grapplers, like from the touch of a button these days. When I was coming, I started jujitsu in July 2012. Like I really didn't have the same access. I did have to travel to world-class facilities in order to understand, like, okay, this is what they're teaching here. This is how they move here. Let me emulate that. Let me bring that back. Now let me show my training partners. Now let's all workshop it all together. There was just so much back and forth in terms of traveling. Pretty much I was nomadic, traveling across the world, going on this jujitsu pilgrimage to try and get information. Whereas now we have, like, thankfully, amazing resources like BJJ Fanatics, Jiu-Jitsu X, Submeta, which is Lao Kun Zhao's uh, subscriptional site. It, it's truly one of the best subscriptional sites that I've seen. So highly recommend people to take a look at that if they have the opportunity to. There's just so much access to information. So understanding between having reliable and trustworthy sources to look for world-class jujitsu, that's also a point that we need to take into account. That paired with evaluating narratives, limit like trying to really own that because a lot of people just push it aside or they try and get away from uncomfortable things. They're given to their fears. That That's a big issue for a lot of world-class competitors too. It's the big difference between whether you're going to get first place at a major or you're just slightly missing the podium. Often it is the psychology. You know, sometimes there's like world-class grapplers who buy into the hype of like, oh my God, so-and-so is like, the top dog, like, I'm so scared. It, it's just because, like, every media outlet has been advertising this person and promoting this person. And that, again, adds to the psychological battle. We have to understand that jujitsu is not solely just a physical pursuit or a physical art. Everything has to be taken into account. It is so, so mental. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And that's an area of the coaching game that has been, I'd say, generally neglected, at least until recently, perhaps. There's been such an emphasis on the technical side of jujitsu. And even then, the way that technique is often shown, where it's kind of a monkey see, monkey do approach, you know, it's, it's not really a back and forth. Sometimes there's not even a lot of explanation or understanding. It's more just Here's how I moved, copy it. That's generally the the main way that instructors teach. And there aren't that many instructors who really talk extensively about mindset or the the science of how to train effectively. And I, you know, we've been trying to explore those conversations a lot recently. And I've learned a lot talking to people who study and practice in that space because you're right. That is such a limiting barrier for so many people, just a lack of self-confidence or lack of self-belief or labels they've attached to themselves that silently steer you in one mm. direction versus another. It it's and it happens to everyone. It even happens to world-class athletes. I mean, we've talked to multi-time world champs on this show who have confessed that they, you know, they battle with confidence issues. Everyone does it at some time, but how you deal with that and the relationship you have with your own insecurities becomes very important in terms of how you can grow and get better. Because like you said, the more aware of and accepting of and willing to work with your own insecurities, the more likely you're going to be to surpass them. 100%. Let me give you a really good one that everyone can relate to. I'm not strong enough. <laughs> yeah, like I know a lot of women say this, but it's to have the understanding that you don't necessarily need to be strong to win a role. It's to understand how can we improve our jujitsu that that becomes less relevant, right? And of course, like you need to have enough knowledge in order to actually crush that belief. So of course, there is a level of guidance that a coach should be giving, or there has to be access to this information that you need to have a good understanding of basic physics or just the understanding of timing to understand, okay, if my... My physical attribute is not that I am the strongest person in the room and one of the smaller women in every training environment that I go to, right? So I can't necessarily say like, oh, I'm going to own everyone today just based on my strength. Like that's most likely not going to happen, right? So in what would be productive for my training session is understanding, okay, I'm going to train with these this group of uh, training partners today. Uh, maybe once a heavyweight, once a featherweight, et cetera, et cetera. I need to have a different approach with each person 
that I'm going to be sparring with also. Because if I'm sparring with the same approach that, if I'm rolling with the heavyweight and I have the same approach that I have with the featherweight, it's not necessarily going to work out because, of course, the timing component is so important in that. I always reference this in, in seminars that I teach or often in privates, but very basic force equals mass times acceleration. In order to produce more force, given that we're a fixed mass and we're not gaining weight during our session, a certain amount of acceleration needs to occur if we want to produce more force that we may need to complete a sweep or to complete a takedown, et cetera, et cetera, or having the correct direction of which I will be able to off-balance my partner, being able to read space appropriately. And again, this goes back into like why conceptual learning is much more helpful, because if you have an idea of how, how to relate to space, just like around your own body, firstly, and then, oh, how do I look at space in relation to my partner and in relation to the floor? This is something that I often talk about when I'm trying to teach beginners or people who are just quite new to jujitsu, because I think that really fast tracks a lot of learning. When you just try to isolate the technique, it becomes super black and white. But to understand space overall, like, okay, what is actually required to complete a sweep? Again, that goes back into the goal setting part. So, okay, I want to have high level understanding of how sweeps work. It's not, I want to learn five sweeps from every guard position. Of course, that's a great goal also to have, like learning five sweeps, three to five sweeps from every position, especially when you're starting off. But then after you do that, it's really like having that deep dive into each technique. Like, okay, why does this sweep work? Like, what is my body doing that is allowing me to sweep my partner? Like, how am I affecting that base? What is the shape of that body like when I'm starting the sweep, in the middle of the sweep, at the end of the sweep? Because I often reference a lot of sweeps as looking like a forward roll or backward roll, right? So we're almost forcing someone to roll over. So if we can imagine the aesthetic, the body shape of my partner as that takes place, why a sweep may or may or may not be successful, it's often about like, okay, like, do you know what sort of body shape you're trying to create? How are we trying to eliminate potential points of their base, etc.? And again, that's the self-inquiry process, asking ourselves, the right questions will really enhance how we're able to improve our jujitsu by ourselves. Yeah, that's a, a really, really important point. And it kind of ties into something that you talked about earlier when you were talking about tape study. What I've often found is look, when you go to the gym and you go to a regular class, Usually what's going to happen is the instructor has some agenda that they want to work on for the day, but they have to kind of tailor their education to the lowest common denominator. There may be a whole bunch of people in the room and they have to provide some generic instruction that everyone can just pick up and use. But sometimes the important stuff doesn't get covered in that. Right. Your instructor might be talking about, oh, well, you put your leg here and your arm here and everyone follows along. But just because you technically know the steps doesn't mean you can actually execute the technique against a resisting person. What often makes the difference in terms of making a technique effective is, like you said, understanding the timing, understanding the context of when to do this, understanding how you can chain and set up into what you want to do and how you can do that in a way that your opponent doesn't know it's what you want to do, right? Being sneaky like that. These are things that often escape the general class. So they're not things that are likely to come up just by listening to your instructor. They usually encourage a degree of self-reflection. And again, on the topic of tape study, that's where getting video feedback from coaches is awesome because they'll point that out to you. If you record yourself doing a three-minute roll, you send it to someone else to look at, you're probably going to get a lot of feedback about timing and setup and strategy and things that might not come up if you're learning from an instructional or if you're just showing up to the fundamentals class. So again, to, to hammer at home, you know, having someone 
review and observe your rolling and how you move in detail is just such a game-changing concept, right? I just, like I said, we do this a lot and I've seen how much impact that has on people, but it does require you to be vulnerable, to go outside of your comfort zone and to show your weaknesses, right? You have to kind of record the things you're not good at and give them to someone that you really respect and be willing to have them rip you apart, right? It's a process that takes some getting used to, but it's so valuable to do. Uh, I think that the biggest obstacle in most people's way is themselves. And when people can own that, and this is myself included at times, you know, because I know I'm my own limiting factor at times when I don't win what I want to, right? Like I know exactly, I know all the reasons why, and I know exactly what I need to do in order to win or in order to approve. But will I take the actions that will allow me to get there, right? But often if something's too uncomfortable or I'm tired, that there's so many things that we can say to justify it. But at the end of the day, it's being really clear cut with yourself and understanding that you know that you're in control of the outcome. <laughs> you know that if you do the specific training on the area that you're bad at, that you will get more data on it and that you will get better at it. Because the more you do something, you generally will get better at it. You just have to keep changing the approach if it's not working like okay like i lost this specific training round in uh 50 50 so let me specific train if i keep losing let me dial down the resistance okay i'm getting better at this level of resistance let me up the resistance now hmm, okay like which position am i getting more caught in like what am i susceptible to in the 50-50 position, for example. Okay, let me do 50-50 with another partner, gather more data, gather more data, gather more data. It's it's a studying process. And I think when we look at it from a more academic approach, it, it's easier to separate the emotion from the jujitsu. Because actually, I think a lot of people have an issue with making it too emotional with the process. And I think, as you said, it's truly beneficial, even if you're not really getting video feedback from coaches, that you ask a friend in the training room to take a look at your role. Like, hey, can you watch me roll the next round with XYZ person and give me some feedback on what you think I could do better? Or like, I'm working on this position and you just like, yeah, give me your perspective. And ultimately, Regardless of whether they give you something helpful, you have an additional perspective. And each time you keep doing that, that's just more accumulated data. Yeah, yeah. And then you can make better judgments. So like, okay, like I should do this next time in this position. That all adds up ultimately. Because of course, like, I, I understand there's a lot of people who are hustling out there. Like I know so many of my friends in... Europe and Asia, they're hustling out there trying to get to like the biggest championships. That they're, they're not just there. Yeah. Every penny that they save is like going to a championship. They can't always afford to get privates or to get video feedback. So like I, I resonate and I, I feel that because I, I was once also in that position as a younger grappler. So this is part of the process. Like if you want to be able to become world class and you can't always afford to get like those extra little things that this is the way this is the way that we have to approach the systems-based approach so i like concisely try and summarize everything you have to put systems in place you have to really address what your weaknesses are you have to be very clear with yourself what your goals are and it doesn't have to be just one goal like one can be a positional goal one can be like a championship goal one could even be just like, I want to be more confident in my top game. I want to be more confident overall as a grappler and fight without fear. I don't want to be afraid I'm going to get hurt every session. I don't want to keep saying that I'm not strong enough because a lot of the time people have more than enough strength to take themselves through the burden of daily life. <laughs> Sometimes daily life is much harder than jiu-jitsu. You know what I mean? The evaluating your narratives. Sometimes that's going to be really hard to do by yourself. This may take some time, but be patient with that. Getting accountability from your training partners. Because understand, at the end of the day, this is not a solo sport. It is really dependent on the people in the room. Whether that is a group or you're in a team. Even if you're nomadic, it does really help to have reliable and valuable friends. 
valuable training partners. And yeah, if you can really get away from being afraid, embracing the vulnerability, embracing that it's okay to be put in bad positions, like no one's judging you if you get into Firstly, even if the person is judging you, I can tell you the amount of times I put myself in bad positions at AOJ that like, sure, maybe people are judging me, but ultimately I don't care because it's not the competition. (laughs) You know, like I I also need to learn. I want to understand what reactions they'll do when I get into that position. Can I get out? Am I able to get out? Was I too tired? Did I take too long to react? Again, this leads into that self-inquiry process again. All of that is data collection. And if I don't put myself in bad positions in the classroom, when am I going to do it? I'm avoiding the hard stuff that will make me grow. Ultimately, of course, I don't want to get in a bad position in competition. But to have the confidence that I can get out of the bad position is what will also assist in eliminating those self-limiting beliefs. Because you will feel almost invincible if you can escape from a bad position, recover, and get back into an offensive cycle. That is part of actually what I think has really reinforced my positive psychology over the years because I, I was training in Asia, like back and forth between the States and Asia. And the level of jujitsu is not as high over there, you know? So there's no point in me trying to smash everybody every day because what would I get out of that? It was much it was much more helpful for me to really put myself in bad positions. And also, like, that's part of what I mean by give and take. You know, I go back, I share information, put myself in bad positions, but I let them work. Let them work in a way that is still realistic, but also like, like okay, I'm going to recover this way. Then they ask me, oh, like, wow, how did you recover from that? That like, that, that was crazy, da 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 I'm adding to what they know about the recovery process and the retention process. Then they're also getting smarter. They're becoming more educated with their reactions. Like, the whole ecosystem flourishes and becomes better because if you're not at a world-class facility you are able to kind of create this world-class effect that if i make one person better they will make another training partner better and the whole ecosystem will improve that ultimately takes time for example in hong kong like it's been a lot of back and forth over many many years but i can tell you like definitely there are many high-level grapplers in hong kong now but again it's not on the same level as the states but it's definitely a lot more high level than when I started, like definitely a lot more high level than when I was there in 2013. And that is massive progress, you know, like so these things take time. The sport is still very young, but I, I think if we contemplate on all these points that I shared, like really like have a structure, address your weaknesses, set yourself a training task, set yourself goals that like the different types of goals, you can have the more macro goal. That's going to be a little bit more long-term have a short-term goal. So you also incentivize yourself like, hey, I am doing pretty well. So I think people often stop themselves from praising themselves. It's usually something negative. Like, oh man, like I got my ass beat today. It's like, yeah, I got my ass beat, but like I had a pretty good sweep attempt. Like I didn't fully finish the sweep, but I, I think if I adjust my tempo change in the application of the move that I'll be able to get it next time. That for me is what's going to be the positive response and the way to develop and to get to be happier in the training room. So ultimately, Steve, like what I want for most people in jiu-jitsu is that they're enjoying themselves. It's not necessarily about being world-class. If you enjoy it and you're passionate, you're probably going to be world-class at it anyway. But this is really how I became the person I am today and why I am where I am. I'm just, I'm just passionate. Yeah. And I just keep it going. <laughs> yeah. So I hope, I hope that helps the people end up listening to this i think it will i think it will i mean it is such a common problem i know people tend to beat themselves up over this but yeah your your ability to roll with the punches and learn that you can overcome loss and you can use loss as a learning vehicle which is so important right no one gets everything right a hundred percent of the time the difference is just what you do when you make a mistake do you use that as feedback to funnel back into the process so you can do better next time or do you dwell on it we had a uh, brianna saint marie do a review for one of our premium subscribers recently and i really love some of the feedback that she shared there was a guy who was stuck in a basically in a defensive cycle in a leg entanglement and Brianna said, look, you know, I get it. You know, this is a scary situation. You're struggling. You don't feel like you're doing well here. Don't worry about it because I've been there too. 
right? And I mean, look, if, if she can say that and admit that, then I think everyone should be able to willingly say and admit that, look, some days we get stuck in bad situations. It's not a, a value judgment about whether you're good or bad. It's just part of the process. It's in fact a good thing if you're getting stuck in bad situations, because that's where you're most likely to get the best learning results, right? Is if you go into places where you're not good and then you focus on patching those up, it can be so beneficial. So I think it's important for people to understand that that's a universal thing. It's not just something that champions do. It's a mindset that anyone can adopt and integrate into their training. Like champions label too. Exactly. We're all human at the end of the day. If one person is capable of doing it, you're definitely capable of also doing it. I think a lot of people, this is one more, but the last narrative again, so-and-so has been training since they were six years old. There's no way I'd be able to catch up. That's the narrative. Yes, it might be difficult. It's not impossible. So people have to stop telling themselves that it's impossible because that is already the biggest barrier. I am too old to win an adult world, da 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 da. It's a narrative. If you want it bad enough, that's just simply what you need to evaluate because if you want it, go get it, find the way, create the structure. There are like so, so many people that have an intelligent approach these days. Like it's really empowering also for me to see it liberating almost because I was for a very long time, I was like, oh my God, everyone's doing things in such a backward fashion. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, it's like a Jurassic era of jujitsu. I'm like, we can do things so much better. Everybody would be evolving at a much faster rate. And now I'm definitely seeing the evolution of which like people are like really taking control of their own learning. They're not waiting for the instructors to like just show them everything. Like they're thinking more critically because Honestly, what this is, is critical thinking. It's a critical thinking exercise. If you're able to critically think, or rather refine your critical thinking process, refine your self-inquiry process, then wow, you're going to just see amazing results. So guys, I think that's more or less why I wanted to share. If you do have more questions or personal questions that you have for me, please feel free to contact me on Instagram at Margot Ceccarelli. I know I have a challenging last name, but you can find it somewhere on BJJ Mental Models. <laughs> Otherwise, I am also available on the BJJ Mental Models Discord channel for the premium users. So if you subscribe to the premium service, you have a method of talking to me through the Magadosian channel. And yeah, thank you so much for inviting me back on to the show, Steve. Thanks for coming by. You know I love having you on, Margot. One last question. And, and by the way, I'll put all of these links in the show notes, so don't beat yourself up if you're having trouble remembering people's names and how to spell it. Just go to the show notes. There will be a link there you can just tap to, to find Margot. But if people were looking for that guide in this journey and they were looking for someone to help them become a world-class coach, how can they work with you and how can they make that happen? So again, if they reach out to me on Instagram, DM is always going to be the best way because we're inviting a personal dialogue. Otherwise, you can also look at my website, margotchiccarelli.com. Alternatively, I do believe the URL, the nomadic ID is still active. So the nomadicid.com. You can see what all the online coaching services I do provide. I usually have two main services that I do provide from people for 2023, which is month-to-month online coaching and also online mentorships, which are a little bit more long-term they don't operate on a month-to-month basis, but rather it's three months, six months, and 12 months or otherwise. If you're longer than that, then again, that's a custom plan. And we would discuss that either in a consultation that you can also look on my link tree on Instagram. You can schedule a free 15-minute consultation there through my Calendly link. Otherwise, yeah, DM is definitely the way to go. Feel free to open a conversation with me. Or even if you have a technique question, you just want to get out of the way. I'm also doing some reviews now on the BJJ Mental Models. You can get a sample of what it feels like to work with me and just leave some leave some meaningful notes for me. So then I also personalize how I do review your footage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great transition. I mean, I think everyone knows this show is brought to you by BJJ Mental Models Premium. That's why you don't have to listen to ads for Manscaped and Blue Chew. If you don't know what that <laughs> be, if you don't know what BJJ Mental Models Premium is, it's our subscription service. It's very different from most of the other subscription services, which are mostly technique libraries. Ours basically has three parts 
content, coaching, and community. That's the reason you would sign up. In terms of content, there's over 50 hours, I believe now, of educational audio-style conversations like we have here on the public feed, except we go into way more detail and we kind of structure things in a more course-like manner, but it still maintains the conversational flow that we do here on the podcast. In terms of coaching, like Margot said, if you're a subscriber, then within reason, we'll do some reviews for you. You can upload your training footage and we'll break it down and give you feedback. There's a ton of, of high-level pros on there. Like Margot said, she's been helping. Brianna St. Marie's on the team. Um, Dominica Oblanite. Rory Van Vliet, you mentioned, is on the team as well. So it's a great way to get some of that high-level feedback if you don't have direct access to it at your gym and it's hard to beat the price. And then the third part is the community. We've got a, an amazing Discord and an amazing group of people. So I do recommend trying it out. Free for the first week. So please do consider it if you haven't already. You can check it out at bjjmentalmodels.com or alternately, again, I'll just put the link in the show notes to make that easy. But Margo, thank you so much for coming by. Really appreciate it. So happy for you with the new move. So happy for you with the marriage. A lot of moving parts right now, but uh, it's exciting and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you, Steve, as always. I'm sure to keep everybody updated. Awesome. Thanks a lot. And thanks to the listeners as well. Truly appreciate your time. Take care. We'll talk to you next week. See you soon.